Good morning, Chapel. How's everybody doing this morning? You sound great. That's good you're awake. A lot of good stuff going on. School is back in session. If you have not known, maybe you got a speed ticket to a school zone, so you found out real quick, uh, but it is back in session. And last week we prayed over all our kids and students. And I want to take a minute this morning before we even get started, just pray over our coaches, teachers, administration, support staff, because they're some of the bravest people uh, in the world. You know, I have four kids. I can only imagine have 26 at one time for eight hours a day. Like that is bravery at its finest. But also they're on the front lines between the collision of family and faith values and secular values and cultural values. And they're in the middle of that, that battle and trying to be a light into the darkness and try to be inspiration to kids and be moms and dads to kids that are looking for moms and dads and be motivation to kids that are looking for motivation. And so it's a huge deal. And I don't look at it as a job. I look at it as a ministry. And so if you're working at a school in any form or another, would you just please stand to your feet all over the room? If you'd give them a big round of applause as they're standing up. And I'm going to pray for them in just a second, but I'm going to ask, if you're just next, to, close to somebody, we just lay your hands on them, just, just simply push, place your hands on them. We just want to pray over them just for a second. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the opportunity every one of these men and women have as instruments of heaven, as vessels of your spirit, as light they carry in their, in their spirit, in their personality, in their giftings, and their talents, as they walk into schools and locker rooms and administrative offices every single week, carrying heaven with them. I pray, Father, as they carry heaven with them, that you protect their minds from all the stress, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the worry, all the doubt. I pray that you protect their bodies from any physical harm, any sickness, any disease, any germs, any bacteria, any injuries. Father, I pray you protect their spirit. Allow for their spirit to be poured out into kids who are desperate for somebody to believe in them, desperate for somebody to love them, desperate for somebody to inspire them, desperate for somebody to speak life over them. And so, Father, this school year, I pray as they go, they don't go as just teachers or coaches or principals or administration. They go as missionaries being sent by heaven to carry your word and your light and your spirit and your love into the school system. And so, Father, above all things, we pray your glory is received. You receive honor and praise in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Give them another round of applause real quick. I'm going to continue our How to Be Brave series, at least tied up today. But next Sunday, some of you know Kim Clout, Evangelist Kim Clout will be with us. He's been coming to chapel for, for many, many, many years, good friend of mine. He'll be here next Sunday. And the following Sunday, I think it's September 3rd, I'm going to share a message called Should Christians Drink Alcohol? So go ahead and get ready for that. Half of you are already mad. The other half, like, praise God. We'll figure out which side it comes on later on. And then I'm starting a series on the book of Galatians for the fall. So that's what's coming up in the next few few weeks. If your Bible you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to be in the whole chapter this morning. And, you know, there's lots of fears out there. Last week, we kind of hit the mindset of fear or faith. Today, we're going to walk through the story of David and Goliath. And, you know, there's lots of different fears that are out there. You know, there's fears, you know, of spiders, like Toya's deathly afraid of spiders. She's also deathly afraid if a car puts on their brake lights two miles ahead, she freaks out. Right, I don't know if y'all have that, but she's afraid of it. Me, I'm, I'm afraid of snakes, definitely afraid of snakes. I grew up, we moved from the city kind of to the country, and one of the first weeks there, I stepped on a snake, it chased me, and my great Aunt Lucy was like 90 years old at the time, had to protect me from the snake and kill the snake. So I set up a whole journey of life. Uh, a couple years ago, I'm at, I'm at the office, and Toy said, hey, there's a snake in the house. Right, so Toy and the kids were at home. My plan was just file divorce papers, leave her the house, and take off. But at some point of me thought, I may need to take care of this as a man. Ask RJ, I was like, hey, because RJ's kind of more manly when it comes to the snakes. I said, hey, what kind of snake is it? And he sends me this picture, and it's, it's this huge snake. And I was like, dude, it, it may be a copperhead, it may be a regular snake. I was like, just wait, I'll come and take care of it, right? So I come, and I go downstairs to the basement where the snake is, and it's not a big snake, it's about this big. But it could have been the same. I was scared that I got tongs from the kitchen and a bucket, and I protected my family from my greatest fear, right? So I, I'm a man. Now, RJ helped a little bit to kind of inspire me and challenge me, but, you know, there's fears. And so when you face something that you're afraid of, naturally your body has certain responses, and they call it fight, flight, or flee, Right? 
or freeze, fight, flight, or freeze. Fight. Some of you, when you see a snake, you're like, I'm going to kill this thing. Your adrenaline's flowing. You get anxious. You get ready. You get strong. You're just ready. And some of you, your natural response when you see something you're afraid of is you get an adrenaline rush, and it causes you to run away as fast as you can. And then for some people, they get anxious, and their body almost shuts down. They begin to freeze, right? So all of us in this room have one of those three responses to everything we're afraid of. And what I want to talk about today is how do you overcome that natural response to walk in your God-given purpose to obtain what God has already given you? And I'm talking about fear, as Zig Ziglar said, is this. It's an incredible quote. He says, fear has two meanings. Forget everything and run or face everything and rise. And I believe in the kingdom of heaven, it's not forget all the promises and run away. I think it's, it's you rise up and you move forward to take what is godly given to you and all those things. And one of my great, I'm a, I'm a big war movie fan. You know, you can judge me later, but I love war movies. Tombstone is the greatest movie of all time. Literally, I think God anointed it with the Holy Spirit. After that is Gladiator. Braveheart is up there. And there's a true story of the story of Braveheart that is absolutely incredible. Robert the Bruce was the king who's trying to set Scotland free in the 1300s from, from the rule of the Spanish and the rule of England, trying to set them free. Well, he passed away. And when he passed away, naturally, the monarchs at the time, they would, they would take their body and separate the different organs and bury them all across the land so they'd be part of the land. He wanted them to do that, so he took his organs, buried them all over the place, except his heart he wanted them to take to the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem, so his heart could see what they had been fighting for. And so one of the guys took his heart, put it in his canister, and wore it around his neck like a big pendant chain, right? And so they go to war, and they're going to war, and they're about to lose this battle where they can't take the king's heart to the Holy Land. And right before the battle is about to just be taken over, this one man takes off this chain with his real heart inside this canister, and he takes it, and he grabs it, and he begins to throw it towards the enemies, which are the Spanish Moors. And as he throws it, he says, fight for the heart of your king. As he threw it, it bust open, and they storm the enemy, and they take over the enemy, destroy the enemy. Why? Not because they're fighting for glory, but because they're fighting for the heart of their king. And today, I think that's what King David was doing in this scripture. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. Right? So they're in a place, they're about to fight, but it already belongs to Israel. And encamped between Sokah, Azekah, and Ephes Damon. And saw the men of Israel gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up a line, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze in his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out? To draw up for battle. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Instead of fighting, they began to freeze and began to flee to go somewhere else. And, and many of you know the story. I've actually never preached on David and Goliath, ever. And it was interesting. And I think it's because I got scarred. I never went to church growing up, but I went to VBS, and they shared the same stories every VBS with a flannel gram board. You remember those things? That scarred me. Or the puppets, which even scarred me even more. And so I think I just kind of pushed it to the recesses of my memory. And so many people look at the story and they think it's the story of the underdog, the little man defeating the big guy. They, they think it's the story of, of, of the small guy winning and overcoming the great odds. Or, or Auburn rising up to beat Alabama finally. Like, even God has limitations sometimes. That's not what this story is about. It's a story of, of one man 
who had built a relationship so deep and intimate with God that he believed God more than he believed the enemies around him. That's the narrative of this story. And so it comes up that they, they come to these battlegrounds. You'll see the Valley of Elah, which is a real place. If you'll throw that up, where it's, you can actually go there now. And what was happening was the Philistines were on this mountain, and the Israelites were on this mountain that we're standing on. And they would look across, even though the land that they're at, this actually already Israelite Hebrew land. So they're on David's land, King Saul's land, but the Philistines were occupying it. And so the way the battles would happen is they would gather up in battle lines across one another, and they would send out one man down into the valley to fight to represent each one of them. Very similar to Gladiator, where they'd send one person each into the Colosseum to fight. And if you know the story of Gladiator, when Maximus would reach down in the dirt and sniff the dirt, and the glory of God would come down, and all the men's testosterone would flow, that, that's what I think of. Goliath's down there picking up this dirt and like, I defy you. I defy your God. I defy you. This is our land. I'm taking it from you. You're going to be our servants. And all these Israelites who were standing on the promises of God would rather give up the promise than face their fears. And so you have Goliath, this enigmatic figure who is standing in the middle of this valley who is challenging not just one, but all of Israel, saying, this is my land now. If you want it, come and take it. And as he stood there, Goliath is this enigmatic figure that many people, based on the cubits, whether it's an ancient text or a more modern form of cubit, could have been anywhere from 6'9 to 9 feet tall. That's a big guy regardless of what time it is. He's standing in the middle of this valley, so he has to look like a statue. And so he's standing there, and it's this intimidating factor that Goliath has over everybody else. And so if you throw those pictures up, the rock is six foot five. Kevin Hart is five foot two. Most people actually believe David was between four foot eleven and five foot two. So this is the tallest that David could be. Go to the next picture. That is Yao Ming with Shaq. Shaq is seven foot two. Kevin Hart or David is five foot two. So could you imagine the story, Kevin Hart coming out to fight Yao Ming? Go to, the, go to the next one. This is Shaq, who's seven foot two, with the tallest man who's ever lived, which is eight foot 11, which is the, the highest that possibly Goliath could be. So if this is what Shaq looks like to Goliath, go to the next picture. One more, I think. This is what David would look like. And I'm sure David's not as funny as Kevin Hart, but could you imagine this David shows up with that Goliath on this battlefield? And so Goliath is intimidating, not just in his stature, but in what he's saying. He's saying, send one man out. If I defeat him, you'll become our servants, which means slaves. But if you win, we'll be your slaves. He's defying them in all these things. It says he's, he's son of Gath, which is of the Nephilim. And the Nephilim were these beings in the Old Testament where there's demonic spirits that had children with human women. And they produced these Nephilim, which are these giants, these demonic figures. You know, sounds very sci-fi-ish, but we know with the incarnation of Jesus that he was produced by Holy Spirit and a woman. So it's very similar, but it's the demonic side of that where you get the Nephilim. And the problem with this was when Joshua and Caleb came across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they were told to wipe out all of the Nephilim. When you see these stories that all the, the atheists and liberals say that, you know, how could the God of the Old Testament be such a cruel and evil person killing off all these women and children in all these towns? The reason for when you dig way deep into the text where those are all areas of strongholds of the Nephilim, where the Nephilim were living amongst the people. And so God wanted to wipe out the Nephilim DNA, but due to the lack of obedience of the Israelites, they didn't wipe them all out, so some were left. And now David, in order to get into the promised land and keep it, has to get rid of the Nephilim. The principle for you is this. Whatever demons you don't crucify in your life, your kids will have to fight for you. 
They're in the promised land. It's their promise. It's theirs for the taking. But since their ancestors, their fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers were unwilling to obey God and wipe out what God said to wipe out, now they are in the promised land, but they're slaves in the promises of God. And David shows up. This young, it says ruddy, which ruddy just means redheaded. Can we give it up for the redheads? You finally get some glory in life. The redhead, the redheaded kid shows up. The five foot two redheaded Kevin Hart shows up on the scene. He has no battle experience. He wasn't supposed to be there. He's young. He's too young for war. He's too young for battle. He shows up. This musician slash poet slash shepherd shows up on the scene. And as he shows up on the scene, he sees this incredible battlefield with this one giant in the middle. This giant's defying his God. Defying his people, his family, his heritage, his promise, defying them, and David can't handle it. And so instead of a freeze response, he goes into this, no, we need to fight response. Because you need to understand that for every promise you have, there's a Goliath trying to take it from you. And your Goliath, a good definition is this, your Goliath is, is this, situations or circumstances or pain or problems that seem too large to ever defeat or overcome to walk in God's will for your life. So they're too big. They seem like they're too tall. They're too big. They're too strong. They're too powerful. They're too incredible. They're just too big for me to walk in what God has caused me to walk in. So I'm afraid. I'm, I'm scared. I'm in freeze. I'm in flight mode. And, and what happens is Goliath's purpose, because the land is already yours, the promise is already yours. The freedom's already yours. The love is already yours. The hope is already yours. The salvation's already yours. But it's already yours. So the enemy can't take it from you. He can only intimidate you into not walking in it. So Goliath intimidates you. They also expose your insecurities. They'll tell you you're not godly enough. You're not big enough, or you're too small, or you're too big, or you're not smart enough, or you're not this, or you're not that. Goliaths always expose your insecurities. They also never go away on their own. It says here, he, Goliath showed up every day, day after day, did he show up. And so your Goliath is something that shows up to you every day. Maybe when you look in the mirror, you're intimidated, and you face your insecurities. That's a Goliath for you. And they always stand in the way of what God has already given you. One person said it this way. Wherever there is opposition, that is where your greatest opportunity lies. So wherever you see a Goliath is actually where your promised land is on the other side of. Wherever you see your greatest fear is actually where God wants you to be. Where you're the most afraid is actually where God is actually calling you to. And so in this story, you see four responses. You see Saul, who should have been the one fighting, it's his land. He's the king. He stands head and shoulders above everybody else. He has absolutely no courage. He was a king by title, but not by service. You see, the Israelites who had a failed courage, they tried before, and now they're afraid. So every day they go out there, they look at Goliath, and they pull on back. You see, Goliath, Goliath has a fake courage. His courage is in himself. He thinks in his stature, his height, his size, that that gives him a, a, an ability to overcome these things. But then you have David. David's courage is not in his own abilities. It's not failed courage. It's a godly courage that he developed by spending time with God that gives him this boldness of faith to walk where God calls him to walk and to do what God has called him to do. And so we're going to unpack that in just a second. There's, there's five stones that David picks up out of this river, right? Five stones. And what's incredible to me is everyone there is armed to the T with spears, arrows. The Philistines invented metal weapons, so they knew the metal weapons. They had all the metal weapons. The Israelites didn't. Their number one tool was a rock. David shows up. He wants to fight Goliath. He gets his sling out of his little satchel. Picks up five stones that we know are about the same size as a tennis ball. It is not the slingshot your grandfather got you for Christmas. That they could sling them anywhere from 64 miles per hour to over 100 miles per hour. That is quick. And they actually had that they can reenact it. They can hit something at 400 yards away. 
And David reaches down, pulls out these five stones, and begins to sling it. And it's not slinging overhead, it's slinging like a softball pitcher as fast, and they let go and can strike. He'd been training. And he picked up these five stones, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, four, but five stones he picked up. And I want to give you five stones out of the story as we walk through it today for you to overcome and defeat your giants. It may not be all, one of these is going to be the principle you need. And so starting in verse 17, it says, And Jesse said to his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses. Everybody say cheeses. Oh, Lord. It sounded like you said Jesus. To the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and all the army of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And when he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So David is, is here not to fight. He's here as an Uber Eats delivery person. He's literally doing DoorDash for his brothers. He's taking some bread and some cheese. He's taking it to his brothers to make sure they're well fed so they can fight. He was a support guy. He's not supposed to be fighting. But as he shows up, it's almost like destiny happens. And so the first stone that you see is a stone of purpose. In the best way, everybody wants to know what my purpose is and discover my purpose and know my purpose. Pastor, what's my purpose? You discover or the best way to find your purpose is to lose yourself in serving other people. If you really want to, well, Pastor, you know, I've had people say, Pastor, I feel like I'm called to ministry. I'm like, well, go serve somebody. Yeah, but I'm called to preach. Well, go serve somebody. Yeah, well, I'm called to sing. Well, go serve somebody. It seems like everybody wants to go to the front lines, but nobody wants to serve. And David is only there. This opportunity only arises because he went to serve his brothers. And what happens is many times we think opportunity knocks. Opportunity does not knock. Serving is the key that unlocks the doors of opportunity. And so if you feel like opportunities aren't coming your way, you need to ask yourself, well, who am I serving and where am I serving in order to make something happen for myself? David only encounters Goliath because he was there serving somebody. And here's even better. In chapter 16, David was anointed king by Samuel. So he's anointed king, and they place him right back in the pasture to take care of the sheep. They anoint him king, and they send him to deliver some cheese sandwiches to his brother who are fighting for the other king. In chapter 16, he's identified as the next king of Israel. But in chapter 17, he's introduced to what kings actually do. God was sick and tired of Saul, who was a king by name and by title, but not by service. And God is saying, you can have Saul, but I want a David who's a king who will serve even the lowest of the low. I want a king who will serve his people and take care of his people and shepherd his people like these sheep. And what God is saying is you're unqualified to lead if you feel like you're above serving somebody else. And he calls him up. And he takes these cheese sandwiches and it prepares him for leading. As he's preparing himself for leading, you have to understand this. That your destiny is always tied. Your God-given destiny. Maybe not your, what you can make happen, but your God-given destiny is always tied to you serving other people. And I learned this early. I, when we first got saved, I didn't have anything. I, I tithed, but our tithe was nothing. And I just remember, you know, I didn't grow up in church. I really didn't know how things worked. We're this black charismatic church, and, and they said, hey, do you want to usher? And I was like, me? Like, usher? I said, absolutely. And they said, well, you have to have a suit. I didn't, I'd never had a suit. So I went to my buddy who's from Palestine. I grew up with. I said, man, I need a suit. They only sold T.D. Jake suits. So I had a suit. Toy will tell you. It's like one size fits all. They just hemmed the pants. The pant legs were like this wide. The suit jacket like 17 buttons down it. And I looked like T.D. Jakes when I walked into church. Dude, I was so excited that they let me be an usher. And we went to Cornerstone Church, our home church. They threw us in the kids' room, the nursery room, with like little one-year-old snotting all over the place. 
And I was like, oh, let me watch their kids. And then we helped plant this church called Northridge Church in White House, where Dylan's now at. And I, they let me be an usher. Again, I remember being an usher and seeing all the new people come to the church. And they said, you want to help with discipleship? They let me run a group of all the new believers. And I thought to myself, they let me do this. And then looking back, I realized it was all preparation to see if God could trust me. Why would he trust you to preach if he can't trust you to usher? Why would he trust you to, to lead worship if he can't trust you on the soundboard? Why would he trust you with the great things of God if he can't trust you with the people of God? It's all prepping. And when I retire, I just want to go back to ushering. It is much safer. No one complains. No one whines. Like, I just want to hand out their little community. Everybody loves the ushers and greeters. Like, that's my goal, right? It's preparation. And as David served, it opened up other doors. In verse 31, it says, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with his Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go and fight against this Philistine, to fight with him. For you are but a youth. Many thought he was in his young teens. And he has a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When he says used to, the day before he was keeping sheep. And when, they came, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. He may have been young, redheaded, and, and too young for this. This dude is bad to the bone. And it killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. This Saul was scared to death. No one raised up. He even tells David, You can't do this. You're too young. But when David begins to tell of where he had been and what he had learned, Saul by the end says, Hey, with this motivational speak, you go do what you need to do. So stone two would be the stone of preparation. Her Navy still say, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your level of preparation. And so you don't rise to the occasion. People, lazy people always think, well, when it comes, I'm going to do it. No, no, no you're going to fail. Because you don't rise to the occasion. Just because something's hard doesn't mean you get better. And Navy SEALs will tell, you train, you train, you train, you train, you train, because you're not going to rise with your testosterone. You actually fall to the level of your preparation. And here is David saying, listen, I know I can do this. Not because it's a great opportunity, because I've been here before. I've seen lions, I've seen bears, and I've struck them all down dead. And so you can't slay giants in public until you've slayed a few bears and lions in private. And so the preparation... No one loves the preparation. We all want the glory. Everybody wants to stand over Goliath with his head in your hand. But David didn't kill Goliath with that sling and that stone on that battlefield in the Valley of Elah. He killed Goliath a hundred thousand times in that pasture protecting those little sheep. These are my sheep. These are my father's sheep. And as he protected them, he's thinking to himself, I'm not protecting sheep. I'm training to kill giants. I'm not just shepherding my dad's sheep. I am training to be a king. I'm not just practicing for today. I'm preparing for tomorrow. For tomorrow's victories are done in today's practices. And here is David in obscurity. Anointed king and sent back to play with sheep. Can you imagine the humility of this David? He's literally anointed in front of his brothers. Samuel breaks the oil out over him. It runs down his head and down his face. And as soon as Samuel leaves, his dad says, okay, go back out to the pasture with the sheep. And he goes. He could have got bitter. He could have got tired. He could have got angry. But he realized there was preparation for what God wanted to do. He realized there was something God wanted him to accomplish in that season, and he didn't give up on the season just because he wanted to be in a new season. He was preparing and preparing and preparing. What you need to know is God doesn't waste any seasons. They're all preparation for the next, every season. And so you don't want to have to get ready when the time comes. You want to stay ready. A couple years ago, we were in Haiti, some of you know Pastor Dylan. Pastor Dylan planted a church out of chapel up in White House, Tennessee. And 
I'm trying to think of a nice way to explain Pastor Dylan. He's what Enneagram 8, I think. So if you know Enneagram stuff, it means he's a bulldozer. He also, he, he's never really been in a fight, and he, but he, he's super patriotic. One day he was telling about all the rights we have as Americans. I said, have you ever read the Constitution? He said, well, no. I was like, you don't get to talk about the freedoms we have because you don't even know what they are. And so he's like super patriotic. And, and I was like, you know, you could be really patriotic and go serve in the military. Well, oh, I don't know about that. And so we're in Haiti. We're done with a hard, long day of missions work. And I remember we're in the pool, and Haiti's a little bit in turmoil at the time. And we hear this marching down the street, right? So we're, you know, 25 Americans staying at this little, this little bitty gated little hotel. But you don't know if they've been paid off the guy at the gate. They're marching, chanting something, right? So me, you know, I've had some military training. I understand how things work. I pay attention to the Haitian staff at the hotel. They're cool. Like, they're just doing whatever they were doing before. They're not panicking. Dylan panics. He runs back into his room, puts on American flag swim trunks, work boots, and a shirt, and has a little bitty pocket knife. He runs out there. He thinks these guys are going to storm the gates and take us over. I said, what are you doing? He said, I got us, Pastor. I said, we will die if you go out there. Come to find out, they were just happy the Haitians won their soccer game, and they were just walking down the street cheering for a celebration <laughs> after we all had a heart attack. So you don't want to get ready with your boots and your swim trunks and your four-inch pocket knife. As Christians, you're called to live ready, to live ready, and know that God has prepared you for such a time as this. Now, the other side of this is many people don't slay their giants because they're still running away from their lions and bears. Listen to me. You don't get to bypass the steps of obedience and faith in the kingdom of heaven. You don't get to skip the lion of anxiety and the bear of addiction and then be the victorious hero in the story. You've got to slay some smaller things first. And so what David was doing, he was learning how to slay the lion and then learning how to slay the bears so he could slay the giants. Some of you, you want to post on your Instagram or your Facebook, I'm a giant slayer. No, you are not. You are still running from the lions and bears of your past. And until you slay them, you'll never conquer the giant of today. And it helps you overcome. And as he does this, the more you sweat in the training of preparation, the less you bleed in combat. The more I sweat in the pasture the less I, I bleed in spiritual warfare. The more I sweat in prayer, the less I bleed in spiritual battle. And it's the preparation. But the other stone that David learned there was this, the stone of faith. See, skill comes from experiences, practice. But faith comes through intimacy. You do not develop faith by practicing your gift, whether it's a spiritual gift, a physical gift, teaching gift, Work, give, whatever it may be. You don't develop faith by slaying lions and bears. David is this figure who's cast away. Even his dad forgot about him when they were looking for a king in this pasture in complete obscurity. But what's interesting about this time in obscurity that David has is when he shows up out of the private place or the secret place into the public place, every single one of these Israelites who seek Goliath all serve the same God. They'd all worshiped in the same way. They'd all heard the same stories, knew the same words, knew the stories of Moses and the Exodus. They all had the same God, all worshiped the same God. But David shows up different. He's not showing up as a, a believer in God. He shows up as a friend of God. And they'd never seen this before. How could this young boy ruddy in appearance, with no war training, be so confident. It's because his confidence wasn't in himself. His confidence is in this God. He spent day after day and morning after morning and night after night while his brothers were in the house celebrating with the father. He's taking care of sheep, looking at the stars, writing Psalms 139. Whew. My God, where can I flee from you? If I go to Sheol, you'll there be there with me. My God. And he writes these psalms, and these psalms aren't just songs. It's this intimate, secret place. And what happens is fellowship with God will produce a partnership with God. And David has this partnership that he begins to say, when I was out alone in the pasture, it was me, God, and my slingshot. 
When I was out in the pasture alone, it was me, God, and my heart. Where I'd write Psalms 23, Psalms 24. As he walks me through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because the right and the obscurity in the pasture, God developed his character. Yeah, you're a king, but you're humbled. You're still cleaning up after the sheep and chasing after the sheep. In the pasture, he developed a prayer life. In the pasture, he developed humility. In the pasture, he developed courage. In the pasture, which is his secret place, it was him and God that he developed this faith in God, that God wasn't something in an old ancient book that his parents talked about, that God was some figure of his imagination. God wasn't some figure that Moses talked about in a burning bush. He knew God. He had experienced God in the secret place. And now God opens a door of opportunity for the secret place to be revealed for everybody else to see it. And he stands on that foundation. He says, you defy my God, but my God delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. It will deliver me from this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine as well. See, you can't face a giant if you haven't built a testimony. Listen to me. You can't fight a giant if you don't have a testimony to stand on. And if the only testimony you have to stand on is I've been going to church for 25 years, that is not a testimony. That's a route on your GPS in your car. If the only testimony you have, it was my grandfather, he was a deacon, and my grandmother, she was a prayer warrior, that is not a testimony to stand on. A testimony to stand on is when you've been through the valley of the shadow of death, and you realize that he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. How could you say that? Because he stood before a lion, he stood before a bear, he stood before his brothers who cast him away. He stood, and now he sees this giant. He knows he's going to be just like the rest of them. See, I don't stand here as a, somebody who went to seminary or somebody who went to Bible college first. I was just a heathen that God wrecked and supernaturally saved me. God had his hand on me, opened up a door of opportunity. I actually had to go to Bible college and college later on to catch up. And where I built my faith was spending time. There was this little room in our church where the kids' ministry met. Now, this little junky MP3 player from Walmart. That had been washing the washing machine so many times it barely worked. And I'd put that on and I would sit and lay in this little kitchen room and I would just pray out to God, God, I'm so unqualified. God, I can't do this. I can't preach. I can't even share the announcements or the offering. God, I don't know what I'm doing. And I would spend time learning to trust in God rather than my abilities or my education, which I did not have. And through that, I built this testimony in the secret place. I've preached sermons to zero people more than I've preached sermons in front of other people. And I built this testimony that I've seen God heal RJ of cystic fibrosis. I've seen God heal Toy and get her out of the wheelchair. I've seen God heal Alicia of epilepsy. I've seen God pick people out of wheelchairs. I've seen God save me when I didn't deserve it. I've seen God protect me in things I shouldn't be protected from. I've seen God be faithful to this church in transition. I've seen God. So when next giant stands up in front of me, I just say, listen to this, you uncircumcised Philistine. If he saved me from the lion, if he saved me from the bear, you're going to fall just like the rest of them. You can't do that unless you have a testimony to stand on. And some of you didn't know what your testimony is. Even at the end of times, it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. David didn't overcome because he was some gifted warrior. He overcame because of a testimony. And then when you build that testimony, it goes into this. In verse 38, it says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said, So I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them into his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Like they tried to make him fit the mold. Literally said, okay, if you're going to go fight, you need to fight. You need to put on this armor and fight like a warrior. David in vain tried to be like King Saul. He puts the armor on. He hadn't tested it. He says, listen, it's too heavy. I don't fit this. And he goes right back to where he started, picks up his shepherd's pouch, five smooth stones, and his sling, and goes to battle against the warrior. 
you're literally seeing a shepherd versus a warrior. And he goes out, and the principle is this. It's self-belief. That courage is something you create when you believe in yourself. Courage is something you create when you believe in yourself. And so they try to fit David into this model, but he said, no, no, that's just not me. Like, I, 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 it doesn't really fit me. It's not really me. And so what happens is he has faith in God. He's been prepared, but his courage rises up to he knows who he is and who he's not. And what you need to know is you may not look like a warrior. You may not look like the spiritual warrior. You may not look like a warrior. But there is a warrior on the inside of you that if you quit trying to be like everybody else, you'll finally see the warrior God called you to be. In church world, everybody wants to be like somebody else. I hate going to church conferences because everybody dresses like the top name preacher. Some guys, and I'm at, getting to that age where I'm wearing a jacket. People are like, why are you wearing a jacket? Because I'm getting fat and my skinny jeans are getting too skinny. That's why. Everybody wants to be like somebody else. Don't try to be like somebody else. Be who God has called you to be and prepared you to be for this time. And when you learn that, there's this belief in yourself that this courage rises up. And when that courage rises up, this boldness rises up. One person said, a warrior may change his metal, but not his heart. King Saul had the armor, but he wasn't a warrior. David doesn't have the armor, but he's a warrior. A warrior is not determined by what you wear. It's determined by who you are. I remember this when I was in the Air Force. At, you know, in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, everybody just got out of basic training. I, I joked about this last week about the signal corps, and a guy showed up from the signal corps. I was like, oh, Lord, I've got to watch my stories from the future. Everybody's out of boot camp. There's tons of Army people, a few Marines. Everybody thinks they're tough, Right? The Marines who get out of boot camp, they think they're the toughest on the planet. The Army guys think they're tough. The Air Force, we know we're not tough, so we don't even get involved. And so the Army guys, and I'm going to try to put come from rougher backgrounds. Usually inner city, maybe a little redneck. The Marines are kind of like the frat boys of the military, right? And I remember Nola, I was in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and we come out of this nightclub, and this, these Marines and this Army guys start arguing to fight. And I'll never forget this as long as this Marine guy who I knew I guess there's something in the Marines that if you raise your hands above your hips, that's considered a threat. Right? He says, Marine guy, he's got the Marine haircut, just got out of basic training, thinks he's tough because he's put on the uniform, you know, that doesn't match. And he tells his Army guy, he says, put your hands down, or that's a threat. If you don't put your hands down, I'm going to... He says all this stuff. This Army guy, I don't know if he made it through boot camp or not, but he brought straight street mode on this guy. He didn't put his hands down. He hit this guy so hard... No lie, his eyeball was almost hanging out of his eye socket. MPs show up, they said, what happened? The Marine guy's like, oh, nothing, I slipped and fell. And I was like, dude, that is the hardest punch I've ever seen. You may want to take that Marine stuff and take it back to the battlefield because it does not work on the streets, right? Some of you need to know, it doesn't matter what clothes you put on. It doesn't make you a warrior. Wearing a suit to preach in does not make you a spiritual warrior. Wearing clothes to cover up who you really are does not make you a warrior. There's a warrior on the inside of you that will only be discovered if you be your true self. And David was willing to be different, and what's different about him means that he has something different to offer. Everybody had on the same armor. Everybody had on the same weapons. And here David shows up, and he's different, and that's what God wanted for this situation. Some of you are so afraid to be different, you lose your anointing. Listen to me, you're so busy complaining to God that you're different, that you're complaining to God about your specific anointing. Oh, uh, you know, I'm not this, or I don't have that, you know, I don't have that. Could you imagine if David, God, I don't have armor that fits, I can't do this, I know God, you want me to kill this, I can't do this. Well, God, you know, all I got is these stones, all I got is this sling, all I got is this, I'm not as tall as Saul, I'm not as this. Could you imagine, we spend so much time complaining about being different, we don't realize how special it is to be different. Like, you're special. And it makes you different, and God wants things that are different so you can do something differently. And you already have more than enough what you need to do what God has called you to do. David had everything he needed to succeed. And as he does, it goes on in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with the shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, 
you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, like, that's a lot. I don't know what David was saying, but like, that's a lot more than what you got. That's three weapons. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or the spear, for the, Lord, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on, on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistine fell on the, on the way to Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Like, that's crazy. This young man, you think about it, everyone is frozen except David. And David begins to share how he got to this point. He said, my Lord will deliver us. And he's going to deliver you into my hands because he wants everyone to know there's a God in Israel and he's not playing with this anymore. And it says the Philistine ran at him. David didn't sit back and strategize. David ran towards Goliath, pulls out one stone, slings it, knocks down Goliath, then cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. What you need to know is this. There's a stone of action that no matter how much faith you have, it is dead without works. And so you have to do your best and trust God to handle the rest. David didn't know how this was going to go. He just knew he was going to do what he knew to do. I, I don't know how to fight a battle, but I know how to protect my sheep. I don't know how to use that sword, but I know how to use this sling. I'm going to do my very best. I'm going to trust God to take care of the rest. That is a principle some of you need to know. You are waiting on God to do something. You are waiting on God to bring you victory. He is waiting for you to actually do your best. He's waiting for you to run forward. He's waiting for you to sling your stone. He's waiting for you to step out in faith. He's waiting for you because here's the principle. Grace makes up the difference. It's the difference between what you can do and what God can do. Grace is the difference between your limitations and God's ability. Grace is the difference between your weakness and God's strength. It's between your failures and God's promises. Grace makes up the difference. But you don't see grace applied until you step out to trust him with grace. Even with salvation, the grace isn't applied until you step out of repentance to receive the grace which makes up the difference between your sin and his righteousness. David, I don't know how far this stone throw was, but I would say the chances were probably slim to none that as you're running after this giant and you're slinging the stone, it would actually hit him right in his forehead. What is that? Grace. So now no one can say, oh, David, the greatest stone slinger of all time. Even David said, the battle is the Lord's. He will provide the victory. David knew it wasn't going to be his ability that won the war. It was going to be God's goodness. And you need to know the battle is the Lord's. He provides the victory. But he allows us to participate in his victory. Do you realize how humbling that is? He's going to use my hands, my feet. He's going to use my voice. He's going to use my sling. But it's his victory. I get to partner with him in this. And so here's my challenge for you. I don't know what your Goliaths are. I don't know what, when you wake up in the morning, what intimidates you, what exposes your insecurities. I don't know what causes you to have that fight or flight or even freeze response. I don't know what that may be. But I will tell you, if if you are feeling that fight or flight or freeze response, it's because there's a Goliath standing in the way of what God has already promised you. 
And until you get the courage to overcome your Goliath, you're always going to stay, stay in a state of anxiety of trying to fight or f- flee or freeze. And how you overcome it is you build this confidence in the Lord in the secret place. You these Psalm 23 moments, these Psalm 139 moments where you lean into God so that when that giant shows up, your God is always bigger than that giant. But if you're always running away, the giant gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you spend time in the private place, say, Pastor, what's the secret place? That's your place of intimacy with God, your prayer room, your prayer closet. And the more time you spend with God, the bigger he gets. People say, well, you know, what, what if we can know all about God? You'll never know all about God. And the more I get to know about him, the more I get to know him, the bigger and more amazing he gets. And the bigger and more amazing he gets, the less giants I see in my path. Well, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes real quick. I, I don't know what your giants are, but I know one of the giants is, is sin. We talked about grace and grace, and we think grace just gives us the ability to not go to hell. That's not grace. Grace makes up the difference. Grace, when you deserve hell, gives you heaven, yes. But it also gives you the ability to overcome the sin that's been holding you back from living the life God wants you to live. Grace makes up the difference between your sin and his perfection. Grace makes up the difference between your filthiness and the cleanliness of Jesus. Grace makes up the difference between your your weakness and his strength. Well, how do I receive that grace? By trusting him that his promise of grace is actually true. In responding, stepping out in trust. I'm not going to have you stand up today, but I'm going to ask you just one question before we leave. If you are needing God to move in your life, to bring grace to where you have failed spiritually, the response is repentance of saying, I understand, I'm changing my mind from me doing it to receiving God's grace to help me do it. That's you. I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward. I am going to ask you to simply raise your hand real quick. Say, that's me, Pastor. That's why you slip your hand up. Say, I need that grace today. Thank you. Anybody else? Hold on. Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands in if you raised them. I'm going to pray for you in just a second. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As soon as service is over, in Connection Point, we have a couple of gifts for you. We want to help you along this journey, a journey of grace, that this is the beginning of that walk not the end. This is where you start killing lions and bears so you can get ready for the giants may come your way. But Father, we thank you so much for your grace, which is sufficient for all people. Sufficient in our weakness, sufficient in our failures, sufficient in our limitations, our inabilities, our fears, our worries, our doubts. And Father, we thank you for your grace that makes up the difference between death and life, sin and righteousness. It's for those that raise their hand this morning, I pray that the blood of Jesus cleanses them and washes them makes them whole. I pray that you make them a new creation in Christ, to walk in your purposes, saved by your grace, sustained by your grace, and empowered by your grace from here all the way into heaven, all for your goodness, your praise, your honor, and your glory. In Jesus' name.